Hello, and welcome back to our podcast. In a previous episode, we talked about the prejudice faced by Black amateur footballers, as recounted in the novel by Ralph Robb, entitled More Than a Game, a Story About Football and Other Stuff. Like other writers, Ralph has not only drawn on his own experiences and that of his friends and acquaintances, but also that which he observed himself when living in Wolverhampton in the 1980s. The theme we'll be covering today is titled Isms within the Jamaican community back in the early 80s. Strange title, I know. This basically intends to cover not only the racism exhibited within the Black community towards others, as well as towards themselves. It may come as a surprise to some listeners. It may even be a little uncomfortable for others as we talk about the prejudices residing within some African-Caribbean communities. But I am reminded of the words of a friend of mine that as a species, we all share the vices as well as the virtues, whatever our color, our creed, or whatever we are from. To quote the book, Prejudice comes in many forms, but for today we will be looking at colorism, the peculiar Jamaican prejudice sometimes called small islandism, as well as hostility towards Rastafarians and people whose origins lie within the Indian subcontinent. I welcome back to the show author Ralph Robb and music promoter Steve Byfield. My first point today is whenever I see a Rastafarian, I think of the peace-loving Jamaican guy walking down the street with the long dreads and the kind of swagger that he has going on. Why in the book was there such a visual hatred toward Rastafarians but in the older Jamaican immigrants, or by the older Jamaican immigrants, sorry. And I wanted to start off by reading this really short excerpt, and then we'll uh, head on to Don, Steve, and Ralph to get their input. But Mervyn saved his strongest abuse for Rastafarians, who featured with surprising regularity within the pages of his daily newspaper, or any black person who had ideas above their station. The Rasta man, he would say. Him like a beast on hind legs, a dutty beast. In Jamaica, we used to hunt him down. Ralph, what do you think about that expert, and what did you mean when you wrote it? It's... uh, I remember members of my own family, okay, used to argue with me, why Rastafarianism could never be regarded as a true religion. I remember arguing, arguing with this person, put up all sorts of other scenarios, right, of other religions which didn't go back that far, such as, I'm not going to name any given particular religion, but they are religions which were formed in the 1800s or whatever, and they are given religious status, whatever that may be. I was arguing with this person, if that could make it as a religion, why can't Rastafarianism become a religion as such? And when this comes with the, with the uh, kind of religion, obviously you've got to accept the people who believe in what they are, what they are preaching. Mm-hmm. What was it specifically that they didn't like about Rastafarianism? That's a very good question. I honestly don't know. I know this person in general did not like their, their appearance, did not like their way they were outside of society. Okay, that seemed to them uh, involve some sort of a threat. What sort of a threat? I've got no idea. I couldn't understand where the forgiveness part of their religion came into it. Yeah. Well, How about you, Steve? Since the early 1930s, when Rastafari was founded in Jamaica, they've been persecuted. And nowadays, it's mainly due to the use of ganja. The first Rastafarian to, be, to appear in court was Leonard Howell in Jamaica in 1934, 
who was charged with sedition for refusing to accept George V as king. Instead, insisting that he was only loyal to Haile Selassie and the Ethiopian Empire, he was found guilty and sentenced to several years in prison. By the 1950s, Rastafari's message of pride and unity had unnerved the ruling class of Jamaica, and in 1954, the Pinnacle Commune was destroyed by the Jamaican authorities. In 1963, following a violent confrontation between Rasta and Jamaican police forces at a gas station, the Jamaican government issued the police and military an order to bring in all Rasta, dead or alive, resulting in mass arrests, with many of those arrested, tortured, or killed in what would be known as the Coral Gardens incident. One pound, one shilling was offered for the capture of any Rasta. So this goes way back. You know, attitudes began to change a bit when Haile Selassie visited Jamaica in April 1966, I think it was. And according to many Rasta, the illegality of ganja in many nations is evidence of persecution of Rasta. So is it that people feared the ganja or was it that another religion was pushing up against the religion that was already there? Because I've heard it being said about Jamaicans that they're the most religious people you'll ever meet. Um, they probably are the most religious people you'd ever meet. Uh, but as you, as you inclined earlier on a while ago, that uh, it was impeding on their turf a little bit. It may be inveigling the, the youth to, from moving away from uh, Christianity mm. and towards the rest of friends and what may be more of a threat on the, to them as well. But to the person I was alluding to earlier, to me it was something more than that. What, but I can't really put my finger on to what it was. It's something more than, than, than just the religious aspect of a Rastafarian. Okay? There's more of a social uh, looking down on them as well, which I, I just don't understand. It's interesting because we've been talking about racism and it kind of pulls in that there's racism or isms within the black community itself. I mean, if black clubs themselves banned Rastas, that's kind of black against black hate, right? There's that as well. The Rasta man is against all Babylon. He's against authority. He's against systems. He's against ruling classes. That's a significant threat to the authorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. But why would it be such a threat to the ordinary person, such as our, our relatives of ours, who has nothing to do or very little influence in uh, setting up these structures, such as government, but they are in depth within the local church? So why would it be such an? Why, why would the fairness might be such a such an obstacle for them? They were a threat to the established thinking of the time they were providing an alternative okay that was a threat to all of the churches of which there are very many in jamaica and and in the caribbean in general that's a threat to all of them but when i was in jamaica i went to the church and i was talking to the pastor quite normally and then he just turned around to me and said why you not call me ed boy yeah and that was where it started and it was obvious to me that this baggage that he had was very deep. He assumed that I was uh, selling drugs. He assumed that I was a thief and, and all the other baggage. And that was a good example of what's happening in Jamaican society as a whole. Mm -hmm.
since Bob Marley and many other artists around the world, um, you know, promoting a more positive image, things have obviously changed. But that baggage is still very kind of prevalent among a certain section of people. I'm never one for saying that all of the people have a certain view. That's never the case with any group. But there's, a, there's been incidents of people that have locks doing bad things, and that's part of it also. But that wasn't the real threat to them. The threat to them is that you had thousands of youths listening to this message, you know, an anti-establishment message. And people didn't want to go to church. Started to see that as, as false. You had so many artists singing about back to Africa and black liberation. That meant something to people. It wasn't the church's message. The church's message was always to be, to conform and, and do as you're told. Do what the governor general tells you. Do what the queen tells you. Mm -hmm. You know, the Rasta was saying completely the opposite to that. The Rasta was rejecting that. Touching on the point you just mentioned a little while ago, Steve, right? Uh, you said that uh, a lot of the youth, right, were started to lock up. So do you think that kind of, high, not hijacked the movement, but started to influence what true Rastafarianism is, where by them locking up and then carrying on with their own criminalities, Rather, normal people just considered all Rastas to be of the same incline as these kids. I think that was certainly part of it. But having said that, in Jamaica, the Rasta has the reputation of being very peaceful, okay, a peaceful vegetarian, ganja-smoking individual. Everybody yeah, knows. I know, that, you know, I know. And, yeah. and no alcohol. This is the, I'm talking about the majority. I know. I know exactly what you're saying, but I understand, I understand all that, but all I'm, what I'm just trying to say is that I've seen many movies where the bad guys are all Rastafarians, oh, smoking yes. weed, giving it a total, taking the uh, movement totally out of context of what it truly is. That's a stereotypical That's a bad bit, black yeah, It's a little bit disturbing as well. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Even now, the Jamaican authorities um, fear the Rasta message. Bob Marley, he went around the world with the Rasta message and they had to recognize him in the end. There's people that claim to be Rasta doing bad things and that doesn't help matters. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the, uh, one of the uh, images, right, that the pe people, like my own parents, right, were associated Rastafarianism with is the locks equating to uh, doing bad things. Because I could, when I was growing up, I couldn't lock up my hair and stand on the same roof as my dad. He would have kicked me out. I, I, I first locked my hair when I was uh, 15 and got thrown out of the house. By the time I was uh, 21, I was doing a lot of training, as you know, and um, my hair was good. I used to have a massive afro and my hair grew quickly. So I cut it off because of uh, I was doing all the training. But then I started growing again in about 1990, and I haven't cut it since. Yeah. Now, people's attitude towards me, I've had it all. Even today, I'm a 60-year-old man. I go into a shop. The security guard follows me around the shop. If I walk down my local street, people run up to me asking me if I've got any ganja. The policeman sees that. 
and he's sure I've got something. So yeah. now he's watching me. Yeah. I think it's changing, but I, I still think, you know, false Rasta is yeah. causing problems for everybody. Um, Steve, you've just mentioned Bob Marley. Yeah. And he's a light-skinned black man yeah. uh, with the dreads and everything. And one major observation that I kind of noticed is a trend, and I noticed it as a very black woman. I have dark skin. My complexion is very dark. I've noticed that this actually continues today, that the lighter the skin of a person and the more likely they are to be seen um, almost in a position of authority with respect, they seem to be more attractive. They rank higher on this imaginary scale that speaks of our self-worth. And I noticed in the book, Ralph actually wrote about it. Um, he said, once they had got to the Miss Star and Moon competition out of the way, there was Miss Swimsuit, Miss Wolverhampton, Afro-Caribbean, Miss uh, Black West Midlands, although the lighter the skin, the better chances of winning. So I'd love us to just talk a little bit about that, how there's the scale or this ranking with how dark or how light you are um, as a Black person. I think it's um, firmly rooted in the colonial system and in that caste system that you that used to designate people according to you know you, you had these terms didn't you like mulatto yeah. and, and, and so like the so. house and like the house slaves where it's more it, accepted it, it, because you're lighter color etc mm -hmm. yeah it's a fact that when you go to jamaica in particular that all the billboards advertising cosmetics or or any products often feature light-skinned people mm -hmm. in jamaican society when i'm in jamaica everybody calls me red stevie okay it's not meant in a derogatory way but it's part of the culture there till this day mm -hmm. there is a kind of grading of skin color you think this is totally uh due to the early days of uh, slavery I think it's firmly rooted in that. I'm absolutely sure of it. I'm absolutely but sure. But nowadays, right? Nowadays, but not with not with everybody. I understand. But back then, well, that was the root or where it originated from. But today, I think there's other influences as well, such as uh, the media and advertising, etc. That's fueling it. That's fueling it. Fueling yeah. it. There's other. You see, this is the thing. This is my point, though. It's not um, uh, something that can be attributed to everybody. Yeah. There's just as many people I know and I've met and had discussions with that, you know, favor the black skin. The darker the skin, the better. Yeah. Whether that's a reaction or, yeah. and, there's, and the majority of people I know, they're not interested in stuff like that. Let me ask you a question there, uh, Steve. Growing up in England, right, we're all part of that system, that society that favors lighter skin over darker skin, which in turn, whiter skin over lighter skin. We're all part, we all live in that social mix. You think that a certain amount of black kids, okay, are in all the old Chinese torture system, dripping of water on it all the time, sooner or later, a certain amount of that sinks in without you consciously knowing it? I'm sure, I'm sure, I mean, I. I I'm kind of lucky in terms of I was always well educated by my parents about the issues, had a good group of friends around me. By the time I was five or six, I knew that good and bad people came in all shades. 
but you're, and you that, that, the, that's that's sustained me throughout all my life. Um, you may be the exception, though, regarding that, because what about the average person who only cares about Coronation Street and the kind of beer in his hand? He ain't going to be thinking as deeply as you are. And that's what worries me. Those kind of people, right? Very difficult to change their perception of what should be, especially yeah. when they go through such limited uh, exposure to the world around them. They're so blinkered. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, that would, and that's a lot of people. I, you know, it, it's a strange one. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in the end, when you, when you talk to people, you, 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 know, you have to um, understand that everyone's experiences are different. Yeah, I, I think the majority of people are, are against that type of thing. I went through a stage where I was kind of paranoid. Uh, I, kept, I kept having to quiz myself for the way I was thinking. For instance, I thought about a certain subject. I kept thinking to myself, am I thinking that because of the way I've been uh, manipulated ever since I was a baby? Or, is that, or am I looking at that truly objectively? You know what I'm saying? It gives that doubt in your own head on your own, about your own character, which isn't in some circumstances. You know, divided we fall. Yeah. And that's really the, the, the reason for that tactic. Yeah. Okay, it's certainly part of it in, in Europe. Hmm. It's interesting that you just said that, Steve, divided we fall, because as a, for myself, I know I didn't grow up when you guys did back in the 80s and everything, but as a young woman, I was hyper aware that the darker your skin are, you meant nothing. And it was, we grew up in a very white, predominantly white town, but we still saw our black relatives. And I could hear as a kid, I heard all the things that they were saying about being too black or your hair too thick or too naughty or anything. And for me growing up, that very much um, influenced what I thought about black people. I can openly admit that it was later in my young adult teen life that I realized that black people were beautiful. So then I had to go through that growth period of loving yourself and seeing where people were coming from. But I think it definitely... Which is, which is the answer. You know, that's the exactly. reality. We are who we are, as, as Donald, Donald mentioned in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. But it has to be remembered that in the slavery times, lighter-skinned people did get privileges yeah. over, over darker-skinned people because the lighter-skinned people were often the offspring yeah. of the slave master yeah. and would get privileges. They would be sent to Europe on occasionally and, and sent to, to university, for example, come back to Jamaica and have this education that would get them, which gave them access to employment and opportunities yeah. that weren't available to, to, to other people. So there were, there, you know, there, there were, it's rooted in that colonial legacy right from the beginning. Yeah. It's, it's a divide and rule strategy. Yeah. If everybody realized yeah. that the bottom line is, is the Babylon, he doesn't care what shade you are. As long as you're not white, you're the other. So if you're fighting amongst yourselves... You're, you're a lesser enemy for him. And yeah. that's the main issue. Yeah. Unity is strength. And that's what the Rasta was preaching. Yeah, we're not, we're, it's, going back to what I said earlier, right, about living in England and uh, being manipulated by society in general. We're not all immune to, not all as strong as we'd like to think we are at times. Uh, do you remember back in the day when Ali was fighting Fraser? Now, we all regard Ali as being this big, strong, 
uh, outspoken person on human rights, on uh, racism, etc., etc. There was a time when he used uh, very derogative terms towards Fraser, because Fraser being a yes, dark skin and look yep. like look like it. Yeah, and look terrible, terrible. You know what I'm saying. But even then, what I'm saying, trying to say is that even he, which we later admitted to, right, would have been influenced by society in general by the way he came out against Fraser. And I'm sure he regretted it right to the end of his life that he actually uh, spoke with Fraser in such terms. Yeah, you've got to know who you are, you know, where you're coming from, what, you, what you're defending. I'm against the oppressor. I don't care who the oppressor is. <laughs> I'm resisting. If I can find some comrades to resist with me, I don't care where they come from. I'm yeah. on a fight Babylon, see them where. Yeah. So... Yeah. Say the system, you're just talking about the, 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 uh, the, the controlling uh, capitalist. Correct? Yes. Correct? Yes. Yeah. I know what sometimes like, when, uh, when we're talking about such a topic such as this, we tend to say white people, whereas it should be noted or understood that we're not talking about white people. So we're talking about the controlling parts of the system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the poorer white people in particular, right, have been controlled just as badly as we are. There is a divide and rule policy there, and always has been. What, how do you feel about the people who didn't realize that Bob himself, Bob Marley, was mixed race until he died? And I've heard, uh, I think his dad was, grandfather was an Irish man who married a black woman. A Scotsman. A Scotsman, sorry. Yeah, yeah. He never really denied his father, who didn't treat him well, and went forward. And that's the only way to do it. I've did never think, heard... Did, did, I've never heard but, did you think he had any hang-ups about having uh, been part white? Um, but there's no need to have a hang-up. If you, if you accept who you are, hmm. it doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is. It's what's in your heart and what's in your mind that matters. Okay, I never heard Bob Marley reference anything to do with, uh, you know, different shades of color. I think Bob Marley understood fully well that he was fighting the Babylon. Yeah. He was only concerned about fighting the oppressor, the person who's trying to hold him back. Mm -hmm. He saw solidarity with everybody else who was fighting the oppressor. Mm. And that's where my head is as well. I, I don't, you know, I'm not into this grading of skin color because i understand completely that it's about the other you yeah. know the other is anybody who's not a white man that's how it is you you can you know you can talk for years about it and that's the bottom line you know bob marley sang it in his songs until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior which were actually highly Selassie's words that he sang in a song Interesting. Bob yeah. Marley is saying that Africa is, is, is the homeland. You know, let's reject all of these Babylon societies and go and build in Africa. That's what he was saying. He sang about it on every album. So, yeah. you know, that threatens them. They don't want to hear that. Yeah. That's, that's saying, you know, we're trying to stop you. We're trying to clear you out and do something else. Yeah. Let me switch gears for a little bit here. I have a I'm going to read an excerpt and then I have a question for you. To me, the early 1980s now seem a strange and backward time. There were no mobile phones, nor home computers. There were only three terrestrial stations and no satellite TV. It was a time of different labels and descriptions. Starbursts were called opal fruits, and Snickers were marathon bars. It was a time when Michael Jackson was still black, 
and people of a skin tone similar to the one he was born with were called nignogs in British TV sitcoms just for a laugh. So one offensive word that carries so much weight even today is the N-word, and I'm sure it was used back in the 80s just as it is today. Ralph, why did you resist from using it in the book? Was that to emphasize a point or because you're uncomfortable with the word as well? Bit of both. I was really uncomfortable with people, especially black people, using that word. Okay? Uh, that's not to say that uh, society in general did not have alternative words, not carrying quite the impact as that word, but the word used, words used on TV, very similar words, very uh, designed to get to get a reaction, such as words such as nignogs, mm-hmm. which you probably wouldn't have heard of that, or wogs, okay? Again, words to try and stick the needle into you and to get you to react a certain way. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to remember, right, that the American uh, experience is different than the Jamaican experience, okay? It's, it's got its originality, right, in, which is much the same, okay? For instance, slavery over to that side of the world. But where the Jamaican or the Caribbean influence difference is that we were invited into Britain, okay, to help rebuild the country, uh, particularly after the war, etc. Mm-hmm. And we thought, all my parents' generation thought we were being in, invited in as equals, but soon, they soon learned that there's nothing equal about it. So using that word, the N word, to, to try and uh, emphasize or to, to knock home a point of what British society was like at the time. No, the word wasn't used that much as it is today at that particular time, but it was also a word right, which I did not want to use. Mm-hmm. It just carried too many negative connotations and too many people died where that was the last word they heard for us to start banditing around in every other sentence, uh, you know, especially on rap records or in early movies where Black actors were seen to repeat this word every second, every second sentence to almost yeah. emphasize the point. Yeah, they almost normalized uh, it when it's a word that should not be normalized. And also, I think that's a cop out. Yeah, but, uh, black people to say that they are just want to normalize the word. I think there's nothing normal about the words. Never mind trying to normalize it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Steve? Well, it's a word I've that's been thrown at me for years and years. Um, I've been mindful of, of movements to try and reclaim the word. I'm, I'm not into any of that. I understand that it's a derogatory word that's trying to put me down. It began with colour. Before the 16th century and before the concept it in any way involved with human beings being the English had a fixed black with a long list of negative meanings. Black had come to mean soil, dirty, mm. foul, having dark or deadly purposes. Mm-hmm. you know disastrous sinister you know it was the opposite to white in the english mind yeah. as, as fuel force to purity ugliness to beauty satan to god because yeah. the religious um you know doctrine was always in there and um, black was a powerful and evocative symbol which surfaced whenever englishmen came into contact with black skinned people mm-hmm. or even heard of their existence in english as the african was a heathen and that's what the word is related to. That's what they're trying to, when, they, when anybody calls you that, that's what they're acknowledging. That's what they want you to feel. Yeah. You know, I, I reject all of that. What do you think about footballers actually threatening to leave the pitch if that word is used against them? It's a powerful weapon against them. We've seen the effectiveness of it 
in America recently with the basketball team that withdrew their labor. It's probably the only thing that will stop it happening in England. All the, all the debates that I've heard over the last few years, you, you know, the endless reports from, from a range of organizations, the one thing that's going to stop it is that, yeah. will it ever happen? You know, last year, if you asked me that question, I would have said no way. But I think it's coming closer than it ever has before. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with you when you say she drove with Troy Labour, but he need, you have to be 100% unified yeah. for that to work. Else just going to ah. be labour around. Now that's the big word. Where is the unity? Insane, insane that, right? Uh, there's an article today in the newspaper because you know the American football season just uh, started. Mm. Now, some of the players are not taking the knee. They're just linking arms, okay, to... Uh, to in their way of objecting, because the, the, the owners of the clubs already threatened them if they link, if they take the knee, mm-hmm. they it out. And all I yeah. was surprised about was that even though they just stood to the anthem with arms linked, a huge section of the crowd was booing them. They're yes, I've seen it. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Which yes. is particularly disturbing to me. When Raheem Sterling spoke out about it, Look at the power of his statement. He ruffled some feathers. They were scared. He wasn't prepared to be quiet. If Raheem Sterling was to turn around and say, okay, if I'm going to go onto a football field and people are going to racially abuse me, I'm not going to play. They will have to do something about it. Make sure to join our Facebook group, More Than a Game. It's time to tackle racism. Or perhaps visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. You have questions or comments? Email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. I'm Kimberly Rivando Rob, and I am signing out. Signing out. Signing out.